0: Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. I suspect you'll be relieved to know I'm not preaching on the gospel lesson this morning. <laughs> I'll tackle, or I'll use, the first lesson. On very rare occasions, our readings on a Sunday morning veer in the direction of what's called the Apocrypha, that is to say the 15 historical and prophetic books of sacred literature that Anglicans, Episcopalians, use for purposes of edification and spiritual counsel. Today our case in point is from the book of Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, also known as the book of Sirach. The category is Hebrew Wisdom Literature, and it's really a life-giving source of ethical teachings written probably 200 years before Jesus was born. If you choose, says Ben Sirah, the writer of this account, you can keep the commandments of God. And he goes on to say, God has the power. You don't rely on God for the power. You, with that power, can act faithfully. It's a matter of your own choice. God gives you the power to do just that. He's placed you before you, fire and water. So stretch out your hand for whichever you choose. Before each person are life and death. Whichever one chooses will be given. This past week, I conducted the annual clergy retreat in Lisbon, Portugal. It's the Convocation of American Episcopal Churches in Europe, together with our beloved sister church, Anglican Church, the Lusitanian Apostolic Evangelical Catholic Church of Portugal. Not Roman Catholic, it's Anglican. And what a name, I love to say it. The Lusitanian Apostolic Evangelical Catholic Church of Portugal. It goes by a short acronym, and I've forgotten what that is. We met in the beautiful city, the capital city of Lisbon, and I was invited to come over and to help our European clergy understand and address the spiritual dynamics of addictive illness, alcoholism in particular, along with its insidious effect on families of those so afflicted. Our American congregations in Europe, they're spread all over the continent, are having quite a time with this disease these days and its many ramifications in church life. So what they did was to pocket their pride and their bishop called and asked for help. 33 years in recovery from this disease of alcoholism, a doctoral degree in spirituality, and the emergence of a life's work helping addicts in their family provide me with some degree of expertise when it comes to leading such a conference, such a retreat. To use the common parlance of the day, I've been there and done that. I know that of which I speak. We no longer observe in the Episcopal Church what used to be called Alcohol Awareness Sundays. It was a big deal in the 70s and early 80s. Such Sundays used to be de rigueur in the Episcopal life and practice, but sadly, that's disappeared. I'll use my time in Portugal as an opportunity to share with you what i shared with many of them, and we'll make this our own Addiction Awareness Sunday. Back in the olden days, especially in churches of the South, where preachers still had a measure of credibility and their words a powerful sway, People like me could get up in the pulpit and raise the dickens with their congregations about the evils of smoke and drink and God knows what else. And those dickens appeared to pay dividends, at least to some extent. Preachers screeched, temperance clubs flourished, stills were smashed in the name of Jesus, especially up there in Newton County and Boone County, Arkansas. We had teetotalers all over the denominational map signing pledges of abstinence and promising on Bible stacks to lead lives along the straight and narrow path, ultimately giving way in this country to 13 years of what we called prohibition. Can you imagine In 1920, a nationwide constitutional ban on the production, importation, transportation, and sale of alcoholic beverages took place. And then, exasperated by attempts to control people's behavior, which we know or should know we cannot do, I could almost hear what was said back then. It's that newly popularized question. And how's that working for you, America? In 1933 we repealed the constitutional amendment and went back to walking our own way down that primrose path that leads to perdition, at least for some of us, not for all of us. Teetotal, now that's a strange word. Legend says a preacher man named Turner back in the early 1900s addressed the Preston, South Carolina Christian Temperate Society. And he did so about the evils of John, barleycorn, and the demon rum. He castigated that crowd in no uncertain terms, saying that partial abstinence from intoxicating liquors would not do, that believers must insist upon capital T total abstinence. Hence, total abstainers began to be called. Teetotalers, capital T, total abstinence. Of course, a number of listeners, listeners to such homiletical, histrionics and fireworks, didn't sign the pledge. They didn't take an axe to the stills. They didn't vote for prohibition. Instead, they flocked en masse to the Episcopal Church, where there were much less stringent rules for fellowship where moderation was preached in all things, and where a libation or two was considered a pleasant and honorable thing to do and to share, with the proviso always that one can handle it. 33 years ago, I, capital T, totaled, poured out my last glass of the demon rum along with a few martinis. I'm one of the 20 to 25% of human beings who cannot negotiate alcohol or drugs and do that successfully. People like me cannot drink our drug or we end up in jail or the loony bin or the graveyard. It is that simple. The rest of you, the other 75%, I would say, salute to your health. Go for it. Just do it in moderation. This life of sobriety, I'll tell you what, has given me quite a gift for me and for others. It has taken me all over the place, even Portugal. As a relatively sane person who can share his experience of recovery, and I should say in my case salvation, in ways that trigger resonance in others who are similarly afflicted, and not only resonance but healing identification a desire to get off that road that leads to perdition and a pledge to quit relying on ourselves when we have proved to be so unreliable the lesson this morning says God has placed before you fire and water wonder if it shouldn't say God has placed before you fire water and water (laughs) with God's good grace he goes on now stretch out your hand for whichever you choose before each person are life and death. And whichever one chooses will be given. It is that serious. Just to be clear and to set the record straight, let me say that my name is Stuart and I am a recovering alcoholic. Oh, that little sound over there, my goodness sakes. Mm-hmm. I said that in a church one time and no one said a word and I prayed that the floor would open up and swallow the entire congregation. (laughs) I am a recovering alcoholic by the grace of God and the fellowship of a program of healing. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink of alcohol or to ingest any other mood-altering substance since the eighth day of March 1987. And for that enormous gift, I am so very grateful. I'm not signaling myself out when it comes to addiction. Lord only knows I'm not the only addict in this room. We all have our addictions and they're very serious. We call them attachments. We call them idols. Things and processes and people that drive us to look for value and meaning and strength and purpose and especially relief in all the wrong places. We all receive the invitation to be healed it's the nature of the human beast to go looking for love in all the wrong places. And we've just about mastered that art. In 1982, the number one hit song in Little Rock, Arkansas, was Johnny Lee. Do you remember the song? Let's sing it together you don't remember it. Well, I've spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing a fool's game, hoping to win and telling those sweet lies and losing again. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, searching their eyes and looking for traces of what I've been dreaming of. I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many places, too many faces. In the early 1970s, the liturgy professor at the Virginia Theological Seminary, a man by the name of Charles Smith, wrote a prayer that was later captured by the compilers of the Book of Common Prayer, 1979, what I still call the New Prayer Book. As far as I can tell, and I've searched it, it was the first time in the history of denominations of this country where we publicly addressed addiction, in public prayer. Now with a significant percentage of the American populations, perhaps as high as 20, maybe even 25% with the opioid crisis that we're enduring, that's pretty late in the game to start saying corporate prayers for healing of those so afflicted. Says to me that the denial of this disease and its effect on individuals and families is utterly staggering. Denial, as I'm sure you know by now, is refusing to acknowledge what in our hearts we know to be true. It is the first and foremost symptom of the disease of addiction, and it's a dynamic that allows many of us to keep our heads in the sand until it becomes way too late to get help. Listen to this prayer as I I speak it. It has a flaw within it. See if you can spot the flaw goes like this. It's on page 851 of the prayer book. O blessed Lord, you minister to all who came to you. Look with compassion upon all who through addiction have lost their health and freedom. Restore to them the assurance of your unfailing mercy. Remove from them the fears that beset them. Strengthen them in the work of their recovery. And to those who care for them, give patient understanding and persevering love. You hear the flaw? Notice how we, the praying community, distance ourselves, distance ourselves from the poor addicts. Restore to them, we say. Remove from them, strengthen them in the work of their recovery. As we say up there in my part of Arkansas, Mississippi County, why bless their hearts. They're so drunk they don't have the sense to come in out of the rain. And we leave them out there. I suggest, We change the pronouns in this prayer. Make it us instead of them. Strengthen us in the work of our recovery, and to those who care for us, give patient understanding and persevering love. Again, let me be really clear about this. We all have what the psychologists refer to as attachments, and oftentimes they're deep attachments. We all have what the theologians refer to as idols, We all have what medicine refers to as addictions, people, places, things, situations, dynamics, processes, to which we assign value, meaning, purpose, and especially relief. That which those which promise an easier and softer way to the kingdom of heaven, be it alcohol or opioids or material things, our religion, our success, our debting, or hoarding, or pornography, or compulsive gambling, or power, or control, or even eating. Shortcuts to happiness, wherein our graven lust to feel better. Some of us have lost control, and life has become utterly unmanageable. My own presenting complaint that became a compulsion was alcohol. Alcohol. I drank too much, I drank too often, and I drank to change my reality, to alter my mood, and to adjust my attitude, and to make myself feel better. The goal of all addictive behavior is to change the way that I feel, and to do all of this at what we these days call happy hour. That's not a very happy hour for many of us. I got to a point in that slippery slide that leads to alcoholism where I could not predict with any degree of success what would happen to me after I took that first drink. At times, I felt that I could control my ingestion of strong drink. At other times, it was Katie bar the door. And slowly but surely and quite imperceptibly, I began walking that primrose path that leads to perdition Troubles erupted. Symptoms multiplied. Problems gathered momentum. Until a group of Episcopal church people just like you had the nerve to come to me as the rector. They had the guts, the audacity to say, Stuart, we really do love you. We care for you. But you've got a problem and it's affecting all of us. And listen to this, what they said let's get help, let us get help, not just you, let's get help, you and us. Well, I was dispatched to a residential treatment center for alcoholism, and the help that I was given in that place was monumental. Just the knowledge of the disease itself was a godsend. But then there was the treatment. The treatment has given me the remarkable life that I have today. During the intake procedure in that particular rehab, I met with the attending physician, a psychiatrist from Texas. He had a wonderful accent. He was reading my chart with a degree of scrutiny. He sported something of a scowl on his face. And I was really prepared for him to say, son, you are doomed. Instead, he looked up, he smiled, and he said, Well, I see here that you have a case of garden-variety alcoholism. My advice to you is this. Don't you drink anymore. Go to recovery meetings regularly. Get yourself a spiritual guide, a.k.a. a sponsor. Read the literature and learn everything you can about the nature of addictive illness. Do service for others and a whole lot of it. Pray and meditate and you'll be fine. I said, wait a minute. You don't know the troubles I've seen. I need an exotic form of treatment. And he said again, don't you drink another drop. Get yourself to meetings and do it today. Get yourself a sponsor, a spiritual guide, read the literature, do service for others, and a whole lot of it. Pray and meditate, and you'll be fine. That was 33 years ago next week. And I have been much better than fine ever since that time. On returning to Amarillo, Texas after 28 days in that treatment facility, a man from a recovery group met me at the airport and told me that he would be my temporary sponsor and that he was there to get me started in a program that would change my life from henceforth and forevermore. It was a big promise and one that turned out to be right on target. He showed me a passage that originated in some of the annals of early recovery in this country. In fact, Calvary Church, New York City. He asked me to commit these words to memory and to recall them every single day, which I do. And it's been 33 years of doing it every day. He said these words were none other than the promise of God's redemptive work in the world. And if I would take them to heart, I would find myself in the fellowship of the redeemed have the shape of my own ministry redirected, and discover a joy and a peace like I had never known before. Truer words were never spoken. Let me share them with you as I close, and I will say to you that these words can apply to anyone. You can use them, especially if you've struggled with any kind of issue or dis-ease. The words of these, showing others how we were given help is what makes life so worthwhile to us now. doesn't say a thing about saying anything to others. It says showing the medium is the message. Cling to the thought that in God's hands, there's the secret, our own dark past is the best resource we have when it comes to helping others. With that dark past redeemed in the hands of Almighty God, that is to say, sharing our story with others either by living it or telling it, we can help others avert misery and death. My, my, what a promise. A dark past redeemed in the hands of a loving God. Now may the Lord who has given us the will to minister to all who through addiction have lost their health and freedom, now give us the grace and the power to bring in the sheaves. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.